The government of Canada and public health experts are taking action to protect Canadians from COVID-19. Protect yourself and others, especially those with medical conditions and older adults. Wash your hands often. Avoid touching your face. Cough or sneeze into your arm and disinfect surfaces. You should also avoid crowded places. Avoid all non-essential travel outside of Canada. And if you're sick, stay home. To learn more, call 1-833-784-4397. A message from the Government of Canada. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Carol Off. Good evening, I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Deplaning in Quebec. Bombardier is selling off the last of its commercial airline business. An opposition politician says the deal is a slap in the face to taxpayers who pumped billions into the company. Room for doubt. After New Brunswick shuts down six overnight emergency rooms, a progressive conservative lawmaker speaks out against his own party. Paving the way. Edmonton has named its newest transit garage after the city's first female bus driver. Her daughter says she was a driving force for gender equality in the industry. Walking wounded. A hunter was checking his trap line deep in the Manitoba bush when he was struck by a bullet. Bleeding and alone, he walked two days in the freezing cold to the nearest city. The ball was in his court. The Houston Astros owner has finally apologized for his team's cheating during the 2017 season, but he won't agree that cheating helped them win the World Series that year. And say cheese. A dramatic photo of two tiny mice locked in combat in the London underground has earned our guest a wildlife photography award. He tells us how he captured the miniature melee. As it happens, the Thursday edition, radio that knows how hard it can be to set up a good mouse snap. Bombardier has sold its crown jewel. Today, the troubled transportation giant announced that Airbus is buying what's left of its promising C-Series commercial jet business. Bombardier needs the money to manage its billions worth of debt. But the deal is going to be hard for taxpayers to swallow. Over the years, politicians have pumped huge sums into the company, which is why Vincent Marissal wants Bombardier's executives hauled in front of a committee of Quebec's National Assembly. Mr. Marissal is an MNA for the opposition Quebec Solidaire. We reached him in Quebec City. Mr. Marissal, how bad a day is this for Quebec's taxpayers? Well, it's another sad day in this very long story and a very long relationship between the government of Quebec, the taxpayers of Quebec, and Bombardier. And uh, the thing is, uh, we cannot say Bombardier anymore because Bombardier is gone as far as the uh, the C-series is concerned. So now it's, uh, it's Airbus, and uh, we will have to deal with Airbus. It was already complicated and non-transparent with Bombardier. I'm afraid that it's not going to get any better with Airbus. Was it inevitable, though? I mean, with the amount of debt that Bombardier was carrying, was it possible for it to continue? Unfortunately, I think you're right. It was inevitable in a sense, but so many mistakes have been done during the past with the Liberal government 
uh, and now the CAC is trying just to make it work again for the money we still have in this business. So yes, probably that it was inevitable, but still, uh, it's it's kind of sad to see that we we put so much of our money, uh, we Quebecers, uh, and I guess Canadians as well, in this business. Uh, and the, at the end of the day, we have not been able to make sure that they were going to run this this shop well and and basically be able to run this company in a new global world. So it's it's what one big piece of the Quebec Inc. that is going away. That that's why it is at the end of the day so sad. Now th- this big piece of Quebec Inc. that is going away. I mean, was it considered a company that was too big to fail. Yeah, probably. Uh, now we are we are putting uh, our faith, and it's a leap of faith with Airbus. And basically, what is the CAC government saying to us is, "Don't worry, be happy. Everything is going to be all right. Airbus uh, are nice people, and they will not run away from Quebec, and they will keep all the jobs here." When we know, and it's, it has been said this morning by, by Minister Fitzgibbon, who is in charge here in Quebec, that there's only a verbal agreement. He, he called that himself a soft agreement. And then again, uh, we still have $1.3 billion in this in this business. And we, uh, we, we learned this morning that we have probably lost Six hundred million out of this one point three billion, and we will eventually get it back, but it's not sure, and we will have to wait till twenty twenty six This is what I call a leap of faith mm-hmm. and just for people outside of Quebec, in case they don't know when you call say CAC government, this is the coalition avenue du Quebec that's right I just wondered to return to this to what degree did Quebec have a choice? I mean the numbers of times that uh, bombardier's CEO Alain Belmar would say that yes, we're going to make this work, uh, you know give us another chance, uh, give us some more money. Uh, they they had to make a leap of faith many times in order to keep Bombardier uh, afloat. And, and so I, I just wonder from you, how badly do you think this company has been run? Ah, very badly. So many bad choices. And the thing, you know, uh, in Quebec, what makes people mad about Bombardier is it's the money, the public money we put into into it, of course. But it's the fact that Every time that Bombardier came back to Quebec begging for more money, we learned in the weeks and the months after that the big bosses of Bombardier were uh, granting their, themselves big bonuses. Uh, and I'm talking here about millions of dollars a year. So uh, I, I understand my, my, my fellow Quebecers to be really mad about Bombardier. And it's... Uh, it's it's sad because we're losing this this beautiful company and the A220, what we call what we used to call the C series, is a very very good aircraft and it's now gone. It's gone to the French and the German, and we know that the buses that have made all the bad decisions are richer than mm. than ever, richer than ever. So <laughs> it, it was. From the start, a bad, a bad deal for 
Quebecer taxpayers. But there is the argument that if you want an aerospace industry in your country, if you want it for Quebec Inc., uh, the governments have to pay to play. And we did pay. <laughs> we did pay a big deal. Uh, but I would add to, to, to that that if we have to pay, uh, can we just make sure that we are going to have a good deal for us, for our public money? And quite frankly, it is not the case. It's a, it's a fiasco from A to Z. All right. On that note, Monsieur Marissal, we'll leave it there. Thank you for speaking with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Vincent Marissal is a member of Quebec's National Assembly for Quebec Solidaire. We reached him in Quebec City. When New Brunswick announced plans to eliminate overnight emergency services at six hospitals, the province's progressive conservative government must have figured there would be pushback. But today that criticism is coming from within the party. Bruce Northrup is the PC MLA for Sussex Fundy St. Martins. On Tuesday, he was the one taking the heat when he was confronted by a group outside his local hospital, one of the six health centres that will see their ERs close from midnight to 8 a.m. starting next month. And today, Mr. Northrop took a stand against his own party, saying he opposes the closure. We reached Bruce Northrop in Sussex, New Brunswick. Mr. Northrop, you have decided to oppose your own government's plan on health sector reform. And in a statement, you said that, that you'd done a lot of soul searching. What did you find there? Well, just a lot of uh, facts that I, I, I didn't know. We had kind of an open uh, town hall meeting last night, and uh, it was mentioned that Sussex Health Center serves 10,000 people, but within a small area, we have 30-plus that go to the uh, to the Sussex Health Center here. So the other end of it, uh, we have two major hospitals, which are about uh, 55 kilometers away. One is St. John Regional. The other one is Moncton Hospital. And both of them uh, are overflowing right now, uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, at the emergency room. So deep down, I don't feel that the people are going to get the care that uh, that they need. Are you just talking about the emergency room in Sussex, um, or there there are six uh, hospitals that are faced with shutting their emergency rooms during the night? So are you talking about all of them that you want them to stay open? Yes, for sure. I mean, uh, my main objective uh, is to concentrate on the Sussex uh, Health Centre. All six areas are upset. Uh, They just found out about it on on Tuesday, and there was no collaboration earlier to say, you know, this is what we're going to do, what do you think of this? And the mayors uh, didn't know, the uh, chief of staff didn't know. Nobody knew uh, what uh, the regional health authority, uh, Horizon Health, they, nobody knew what they were going to do, and so they announced it on Tuesday, and uh, people have a lot of uh, hurt feelings, that uh, so a surprise and a shock that they would do it, and each hospital has their own story to tell, and uh, I'm here representing my, uh, my own hospital. I've lived in Sussex for 64-plus uh, years, so 
it's home to me, and uh, I don't want to see anything happen to the Sussex Health Center. But if you're describing what you just described, that there's this 24-7 and demand for those ERs, that is not the same facts that we have from Karen McGrath of Horizon Health, the, the health authority there, who says that they're seeing an average of five patients per night, most of them are not emergencies, and that it's acceptable to have these closures because there isn't a need for that. So how is it that you have, it seems, different facts than what your own government has? Well, she's saying the uh, from 12 a.m. till 8 a.m. that we're only seeing five or six, and I, uh, I talked to the ER doctors who work in there and the nurses who work in there, and they dispute that. They have people that are there from 10 p.m., 11 p.m., 12. Uh, sometimes they would have 15 people in the, uh, in the waiting room at, uh, at midnight. So it's not like they're serving uh, five to six people, which Horizon uh, Health said they're doing. So uh, Yeah, but where are they getting their facts? I mean, if that's what you're hearing, I guess it's anecdotal. What do you make of the fact that the health authority seems to have, have different information? And that's the problem that I have. I'm being give, given two stories here. So that's why I wanted to get this information in front of me. And as of today, uh, you know, I'm taking people for their for their words. And uh, I have to see it uh, with my own eyes. And, and I'm sure the Premier would like to, uh, and the Minister of Health would like to see it with her own eyes, too. So I'm working with the doctors, or the ER doctors that are at the Sussex Health Center, and uh, I am on the Public Accounts Committee for the Legislature, and Horizon Health comes in front of us, I believe, it's next Wednesday. So I'm hoping to get the stats from, from them and then compare the, the both of them. But the Premier, Premier Higgs, who's the head of your party, he says that, that he supports these changes. He says that others will come around once they see uh, the value of them. He says we have to make these decisions. They're not popular. But people can understand the facts and the reason when they see how they how they work. So he's relying on what he's getting from Horizon Health. Have you told him that you're, you have different information? I talked to him uh, last night along with the uh, Minister of Health. Uh, there's a 30-day window here when this takes effect. The, the last shift is supposed to be on March 11th. So I'm gathering this information to uh, present it to uh, Premier Higgs. And, and uh, I was texting him today and mentioned that to him, and he's more uh, than willing to take a look at these facts. Earlier this week, we spoke with Dr. Hubert Dupuis, and uh, he said that he thinks your government is going to fall over this plan. You've only got a minority government, a very slim minority. So how possible is that? It could uh, fall over this, and and uh, I guess time will tell on that. We go back in the legislature on uh, March 10th with our budget uh, for the year, so uh, if there is a confidence vote that uh, comes up, uh, when and if, then I will have to to uh, make a decision then. So, how popular will you be if you're the vote that means that your government falls? Uh, I'll have a clear conscience. Uh, like I say, I, I've been this uh, doing this for uh, 13 and a half years, and uh, the last three or four days certainly wasn't a, an easy decision for me. Uh, I, I have a lot of faith in, in the Premier. Like I said, I consider him a friend and uh, consider that we'll be friends in, in the future. Have you talked to him since you released this statement? I haven't talked to him in person, no, but I did tell him last night that I would be releasing the statement. Was he angry? And, uh, 
No, uh, he he understood where I was coming from. We we have a good relationship, and uh, you know we're we're, we're going to talk later. All right, we'll be watching, Mr. Northrup. Thank you. No problem. Bruce Northrup is the progressive conservative MLA for Sussex Fundy St. Martins. We reached him in Sussex, New Brunswick. This weekend, the first buses left a new transit garage in Edmonton. On a sign outside that garage is the name of a woman who used to drive buses for the city, Kathleen Andrews. In the 70s, she was the Edmonton Transit Service's first female bus driver. And now her name is on the Kathleen Andrews Transit Garage. Here's Ms. Andrews talking to the CBC about her job back in 1976. Well, I'd been working in office for many years before I came to the city of Edmonton, and I decided that I would prefer to be with the public more. I liked driving. I wanted to be outside. I was sick of working in office, so that's why I took the job. And the uh, pay for, for me, anyway, I mean, I don't know if it's for a man or not, but it was quite attractive for myself, anyway. <laughs> do you get the same pay as a man bus driver? Yes, I do. Same pay, same hours, all, all around the same treatment. No, no special treatments. Uh, I do the same thing as they do. I am a bus driver. In other words, I'm another brother, as they call me. <laughs> I enjoy it. It's safer than in my car. The view is better. I have, I know, I'm way above the cars. I can see ahead. I've got all the mirrors around. I just, I feel safer in my car, in, in a bus than in my car. I am an individualist. Uh, I always have been, even as a child. I am not a woman's liver in the sense that I feel that a woman should has to give up uh, her femininity. Uh, as far as if you're doing the same job as a man, then you should get the same pay. I'm out to do a job. I want the money. I want the job. I like the job. I like to work. And uh, I, ne I, I need this job. That's all there is to it, to bring up my children, especially with a high standard of living today. That was Edmonton's first female transit operator, Kathleen Andrews, speaking to the CBC back in April of 1976. Ms. Andrews died in 2013, and her daughter, Lisa Andrews, is following in her mother's footsteps. She works as a transit instructor for the city. We reached her during a lunch break in Edmonton. Lisa, what is it like for you to hear that tape of your mom speaking back in 1976? Wow. Um, first of all, to see your mom as a young person is a little bit surprising. When I saw that interview with her, you know, I was just so very proud of her and, and her accomplishments and, and what she had done. It's quite emotional for me to hear her voice and see her back, you know, when I was only nine years old. But, you know, I'm just so very proud of her. And I was very proud of how she handled herself in that interview. She's just um, so spunky, so interesting, and it's such a slice of the 1970s, isn't it? I mean, she is really forward-thinking, but we don't realize now how forward-thinking that was. Yes, I don't think anybody was expect expecting that back then. But, you know, um, with being, you know, a single mom and a divorcee, I don't even think she was looking at it as forward-thinking. She was just looking at it as a way to survive to make ends meet and raise her kids and, you know, and put a roof over our heads. 
How was she treated? I mean, she, what she describes is that she loved it. She liked the driving. She liked being outside. She said she got the same treatment. She was just another brother. Is she not telling us the whole story there? Not really. <laughs> at the beginning, she wasn't treated very kindly at all by her colleagues. The men did not want women in the workplace, period. With her coming into transit, they had um, height and strength uh, requirements. Once they relaxed those, that's when she came in and said to the branch manager, you know, I would really like to try for this. And he said, well, go for it. Um, when the male colleagues saw her come into the into their workspace, they were not happy with that. One of her operator instructors told me of a story that she walked into the lounge because back then they didn't have formal training. You just went with another driver. As soon as she walked in the lounge, they just all turned their backs on her. They did not want to train her. The operator he, who's, uh, told me that he noticed her British accent because, you know, she, she was an immigrant from England. She came over when she was 14. He being Irish, he, he noticed her accent and kind of took her under his wing and said, hey, you know, I'll, I'll train you because he, he saw how they were treating her. Um, they would also play some really dirty pranks on her. They would, you know, with the old buses, they would have a huge handbrake that you had to squeeze and pull up. You know, they would pull it up really, really hard so that she couldn't undo it so that she would struggle all the time. And the public wasn't very nice with her either. They actually refused to ride her bus. What? What did they say? One lady, I know one story she told me, like she would work late nights. There were no labor laws as to how many hours you could drive or how long you would work. You would work 15 to 17 hours a day, every day. And then one lady, one night she was working late at night and a lady got on her bus and she looked at her and she said, if you knew what was good for your children, you would be at home looking after your children and not taking a job away from a man. My mom, you know, she was always grace under pressure and she handled things with, you know, humor, but she was always polite, but she would also tell you off politely. Um, she just looked at that lady and she said, you know what? I do know what's best for my children. That's why I'm working these long hours and I'm sitting in this seat and I'm busting my butt for them to provide them, you know, a roof over their heads and, you know, food on the table. Somehow she won that lady over because late at night that lady then would bring her um, sandwiches and hot coffee. <laughs> oh. And you were too young, too, I guess, for her to talk to her about that. But did she have support? Did she have people that she could turn to and, and vent? Back then, because I was nine years old, I, I don't think so. I think... You know, all she had back then was her mom and dad. They were the ones that basically kind of raised me while she was working these long hours. So I don't think at the beginning she did have anybody to talk to. Not that I know of. I know three years later she did become the first female dispatcher because she wanted to have weekends off with us. And, you know, I still hear of a story of one of the drivers not liking the work that he was given by her. And he, you know, and he took the running board and he threw it at her head. You would never hear that today in the workforce. Oh. It was quite upset. So, you know, they didn't even treat her, um, you know, that nice, even when she became a dispatcher. So to this day, I keep telling him when I see him, he still owe me breakfast for doing that to my mother. Wow. You know, she made a point in that interview of saying, talking about how a woman should get the same pay for doing the same work, and which seems pretty logical now, but... 40 years ago, 44 years ago, that, that was something that was a policy of not doing that, even the law in many parts of Canada, wasn't it? So how important was it how, that she got that extra money for her family? Well, it was so important that when she did get a divorce, 
from my dad in 1970. I know she went into just being secretarial work and, you know, the traditional roles that women would do. But when she, after she got divorced, she went to the bank and she said, you know, I'd like to get the mortgage on the house in my name. They wouldn't sign it off to her. They said, you're single, you're divorced, you're not married, we are not giving you a mortgage. You have to get your father to co-sign the mortgage for you. So talking about that garage, this is the Kathleen Andrews Transit Garage, named after your mom. Um, yeah. And uh, so Sunday morning, you were there to see those first buses leave your mom's garage. What was that like for you? Getting up at three in the morning really sucked. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, um, by chance, it was actually the first bus out of the garage was driven by a female. So I had to be there. And it was probably... Um, one of the most proudest moments of my life to see her go off. Everybody was saying, you know, because most of them are my students, Lisa, you should be driving the bus. You should be driving in the bus. And I'm like, no, you guys don't understand. This is about solidarity. This is about our sisterhood. This is about women together. And I want to support her going out the door of the garage, her driving the bus, not me. Mom didn't do this, you know, just for me. She did this for all women to have this opportunity. So it was an extremely proud moment for me to stand by her side, yelling girl power (laughs) as we (laughs) left the garage. Lisa, it's such a pleasure to speak with you and hear about your mom, and uh, and, and thank you. Thank you so much. It was very, very much of a pleasure to talk to you, too. Take care. Take care. Bye. That was Lisa Andrews in Edmonton speaking about her late mother, Kathleen Andrews, the first woman to drive buses with the Edmonton Transit Service. And if you'd like to see some archival photos of Kathleen Andrews from the 70s, visit our website, cbc.ca slash AIH. No companies in the United States currently force their employees to get microchips, and Indiana legislators just voted to ensure none ever will. A just-approved state bill prohibits any employer from requiring staff to have a device implanted or otherwise incorporated into the candidate's body as a condition of employment. By device, the bill's authors mean a chip of some kind. They feel that mandatory microchipping would microchip away at people's freedom. Just one lawmaker voted against the chip ban. As the Chicago Tribune explains, State Senator Chip Perfect, R. Lawrenceburg, said that because employees could voluntarily get microchips, it seems the bill is ahead of the curve. But one sponsor of the bill insisted... Sorry, just a second. My phone is blowing up with texts. Spisa, what did I something I just said? Okay, hold on. Let's see. Blah blah blah. Mandatory microchipping. Blah blah blah. Chip perfect. Oh wait, it's that, isn't it? It's that. It's that the one guy who voted against the chip ban is named Chip Perfect. Yes, he he's a state senator who doesn't want to act prematurely on chips, and his name is actually Chip Perfect. Well, that's <clears throat> that's just a coincidence, right? That must be. Although, isn't it very likely that he has a certain pro-chip bias? Isn't that a, a conflict of interest? I mean, his shoulders are on a chip, so he might have kind of a chip on his shoulder. 
The spike in China's coronavirus numbers is terrifying. On Wednesday, 242 deaths were recorded in Hubei alone. And after officials broadened their diagnosis rules, the total number of infections jumped by almost 15,000. But Bill Bu doesn't have time to stop and worry. The Halifax businessman is from Wuhan. He's a graduate of Wuhan University, and he has family in the quarantine zone. And Mr. Bu has been working not just to help his family, but to get Wuhan's hard-pressed medical teams the supplies they need. We reached Bill Bu in Halifax. Bill, what is the latest you've heard from your family in Wuhan? Oh, well, we uh, keep in touch with them uh, on a daily basis. And actually, the family we have in Wuhan is actually my wife's, you know, our parents. Uh, you know, they are, you know, they're quite old. You know, they are like almost like a mid-80s. And, uh, you know, they've been doing fine and at the moment. And at the start, especially the first few days after, you know, the city was shut down and they did not have uh, enough supplies, enough food, and they did not get any face masks. Uh, they could not go outside. And uh, so very fortunately that uh, I was able to uh, to find uh, community uh, volunteers who are so very generous, right. also brave in a way, you know, to go outside, you know, to buy groceries and deliver right, you know, to the door. So they're fine. They're doing, they're doing okay. How worried are you when you get the news about these numbers that they, the Chinese government is, uh, is now saying, well, we weren't keeping the numbers properly, that these statistics, and there are significantly more people who seem to be infected with the virus? Uh, of course, you know, in a way, when you just uh, look at the numbers, and of course, you know, they look they pretty alarming. But also, you know, I think we, uh, you know, we, 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 we pay attention to what's going on over there every day. And, and uh, also, we have also seen you know, enormous, you know, efforts that has been taking place over there. And, uh, and also, you know, the people are now, you know, are being taken care of, you know, to, uh, to some extent. So this has also given us some relief. Right, but taken care of because you got on the case and started to rally, first of all, getting some, some money, some masks, and now on a much larger scale. So what were the needs when you started realizing that your own family didn't have masks and they couldn't get supplies? What did you learn about the shortages that are going on right now in Wuhan? Uh, of course, actually, uh, you know, I have a lot of, you know, contacts over there uh, in China. So of course, uh, I came from Wuhan. You know, they actually ran a shortage of, uh, you know, a lot of supplies. The, uh, the hospitals are also, uh, you know, having a big shortage of uh, necessary medical supplies, you know, to protect, you know, the uh, healthcare workers. So this is very, uh, you know, worrying. Tell us a bit more about what, what you've been able to do. What kinds of money and supplies have you been able to raise and get them over to Wuhan? I, I organized the uh, Chinese New Year you know, gala dinner uh, about three weeks ago. And the, uh, you know, I was the chair of the, uh, you know, of the event. So, uh, you know, right at the, uh, my welcome speech. And I became you know, quite emotional even in my speech because I was thinking of, uh, oh, my goodness, uh, my family's you know, in China. Oh my goodness. Sorry. And uh and of course that the uh I wanted to uh you know to, to do something uh you know that the uh, to, to help them. So I started, you know, calling on the uh you know uh, the uh, the participants and uh, you know to, to, to support. But but my goal was actually you know to you know to to, to support you know uh, the healthcare workers and I wanted you know to help them 
you know, to save, you know, more people. I know that you have been trying to get actual, not to send money, but to send the supplies. So you found sources of the, the respirators, the masks you needed in the United States, but they wouldn't ship to China. You had to get things to Halifax. I understand your your wife has been recruited to do a lot of the repacking and to shift everything around, get it shipped to China. I, what kind of a production have you got going there at this point? Oh, oh, it was quite a process. You know, number one, that it has become very difficult that you find, uh, you know, face masks or, you know, even some other medical supplies. And uh, we have driven to uh, many, uh, you know, drugstores and uh, even Walmart, you name it, you know, and we could not find a single face mask, you know, here in Halifax. So I tried very hard and, uh, you know, I was so lucky to find uh, a supply in the U.S., you know, online. So, of course, you know, I, I placed the order and, uh, you know, the order came because, you know, I asked them whether they could ship over to China, you know, from the U.S. And they say, no, they only ship, you know, to North America. And, uh, you know, so my wife had to open each of the box, even each, each individual, you know, boxes, which contains, you know, 20, I think, uh, respirators, you know, in each. And, uh, you know, just to make sure, you know, they're in good shape, you know, they're not uh, damaged and they actually repack them. Properly and actually, even you know, much I think much you know stronger. And she's staying up half the night trying to get those packages oh, after. Yeah, she, she spent quite a few hours. <laughs> so to you tell me, quite a few hours, you know, uh, uh, and she you know packing and you know repacking. Oh, I mean, she has done a lot of the work. Yeah. How worried are you about your family at this point? Uh, well, you see, I just I was just almost uh, you know could not control my tears when I was speaking to you about you know the families in China, right? So of course we are worried, uh, very worried about them, and we we talk to them every day, and uh, you know we do video chatting and audio chatting, you name it, you know, and so we just want to make sure, you know, number one they're safe, number number two, you know, they stay home, they don't they don't, you know, unless it's very necessary, and we tell them don't go outside, and uh, of course you know also also of course you know it's it's just you know the human. You know, emotion. I think that's my our re, our normal reaction to this. Mm. Well, I hope your family is okay and your wife's family is okay, Bill. And I appreciate all you're doing. And thanks for speaking with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And uh, you know, thank you. And uh, hope you know, hopefully, uh, other people's family are finding us as well. Yeah. All right. Take care. Thank you. Bill Boo is the president of the Hong Kong Canada Business Association's Atlantic Chapter. We reached him in Halifax. It was an advantage, sure. But giving themselves that advantage by cheating didn't really affect the Houston Astros' 2017 World Series championship. Those were the conflicting messages coming out of the baseball team's press conference today. As we've told you on the show, the Astros used cameras to steal signs meant for the other team's pitchers and then alerted their own batters to the pitch that was coming by banging on garbage cans. Major League Baseball has fined the Astros and stripped them of their first and second round draft picks for the next two seasons. The team itself fired its manager and general manager. And today in Florida, the team held a press conference to apologize. Kind of. Here's Astros owner Jim Crane answering questions from the media. Uh, Mr. Crane, what do you have to say to the Yankees and teams that you beat in 17? Listen, the Yankees have had a few comments out there. Um, 
you know, our opinion is, uh, you know, that this didn't impact the game. Um, we had a good team. Um, we won the World Series, and we'll leave it at that. Jim, when talking about the Yankees there, did you say you feel like this didn't impact the game? And what do you mean by that? I, I didn't say it didn't impact the game. Basically, you know, as the commissioner said in his report, he's not going to go backwards. Um, it's hard to determine how it impacted the game, if it impacted the game, and that's where we're going to leave it. Okay, over here. Kerry Sanders with NBC News. Was this cheating, and how does this reflect the feelings of the nation right now where we see a corseting of rhetoric in this country where people seem to want to win at any cost, even if it includes cheating? Well, listen, we, we don't endorse uh, the actions that took place. We, we've apologized. Um, you know, it, it's been tough on the team and tough on the city and, and tough on the nation. I, I don't disagree with that. But the only thing we can do is sit here and, and, and say we're sorry. We're going to move forward in a positive way. And you can count us to be a positive force um, in delivering that message. May I ask, is it cheating? Excuse me? Do you use the word cheating? Was this cheating? We broke the rules. And you can phrase that any way you want. That was Houston Astros owner Jim Crane speaking earlier today. The Astros are trying to get on with spring training and put the cheating scandal behind them, but in general, not everything is peanuts and crackerjack in the league. Cincinnati Reds pitcher Trevor Bauer had some tough words for Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred this week, specifically about the many things Mr. Bauer believes Mr. Manfred is doing wrong. Here's part of a video Trevor Bauer released. So I don't want to rant too much, but like, God, I just had to get this off my chest. And I want to focus on some solutions, some things we can do in media. Like, Rob, if you understood media, maybe as the commissioner of baseball, you could solve some of these things. Like how in one of your biggest markets, half the fans can't even watch the damn game because of TV deals. Like, I grew up, what got me into baseball is I grew up going to see it one Dodger game a year. I'd go to one a year. We didn't have money to go to more than that. I'd sit out in the bleachers. We'd listen to Vince Scully on the radio with my dad. But we watch Dodger games all the time. Half the people in local markets have blackouts. They buy the MLB package to watch their favorite team, and they can't even watch their favorite team half the time. I know that's not all on Rob, but as the commissioner, figure it out, man. Like, how are we supposed to spread the game? How are we supposed to get people interested, young people, the missing generation of baseball fans? How are we supposed to get them interested in the game when they can't even see the damn game? And on top of that, they can't even go to Twitter where all the young people hang out. You can't even go to social media and see anything about the game. I mean, let's not even talk about like the shoes, the cleats. Oh, hey, Mike Clevenger, you can't wear those shoes that are colorful that everybody on Twitter likes because it violates our stupid cleat policy where you get three colors of cleats. Like, I mean, what does it even matter? Just let the players express themselves. I don't know. I, that's, I got so much more to say on this, but I got to... can't waste all my time on just pointless crap that's not going to change. That was Cincinnati Reds pitcher Trevor Bauer, who was renowned for voicing his opinions on social media, in a video this week. Every year, London's Natural History Museum hosts its prestigious Wildlife Photographer of the Year Award. 
And the finalists tend to be the type who submerge themselves in a swamp for 64 days to get a single photo of a wildebeest with a flamingo on its butt at sunset or something. Well, this year's celebrated pictures include one of jaguars holding an anaconda in their mouths and another of an orangutan wearing boxing gloves at a Bangkok tourist attraction. But the photographer who took the winning shot didn't stake out a spot in the scorching desert or a frigid mountaintop. He waited an entire week in a far more dangerous place, the London Underground, to get a single heart-stopping picture of mice in the subway. Sam Rowley is the winner of this year's Lumix People's Choice Award for Wildlife Photography, and we reached Mr. Rowley in Bristol. Sam, first of all, big congratulations. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's uh, such an honor to be chosen. It's been a bit of a dream of mine for almost 15 years, so yeah, it feels a bit surreal at the moment. Well, how much more surreal is it that you have a photo of mice that beat out pictures of jaguars and orangutans for this prize? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's definitely not something that I would have predicted 10 years ago. I guess there's a trend towards that kind of thing now, you know, conservation imagery and urban wildlife. It's definitely something that speaks to people, I feel, and is just something a bit more original. Um, there's something about local wildlife and relatable wildlife that, you know, people can kind of empathize with and people like to see in a different light. I guess it affects their day-to-day lives a little bit more. Can you describe your award-winning photo? Yes, my award-winning photo is a, a slightly eerie <laughs> shot of two mice seemingly having a little scrap, like a little boxing match on a station platform in London. And it's kind of, it's like the most urban, almost dystopian kind of landscape that you can imagine. It's kind of got blue hues and all sorts of artificial lighting around and the tunnel for the train going out of the back. Do you know the backstory to this fight? So, but yeah, it was kind of based on the fact that um, these mice are desperate, right? It's, it's a horrific life for them down there. You know, they might live at best for a year. Um, they'll never see the sun. They'll never feel the grass on their feet. Yeah, they're, they're basically stuck down there and constantly being disturbed by the trains. And the only food that they'll ever eat is the food that's just discarded by people, which isn't predictable. Like on Christmas Day, when the trains stop going, what they're going to eat? It's a yeah, it's, it's it's a horrible life. Hence the desperation of this fight, I guess. What were they fighting over? Could you was it was it food? It was the tiniest morsel slash crumb <laughs> you could imagine. It was the most in, insignificant little thing. Now, of course, it's not just a picture of two. It's just the way they're shot. And this is this kind of eerie, uh, dystopian kind of subway tunnel underground. Everything's very, very cold looking. And these two little fellows having their little skirmish there. So how did you get the photo? What did you have to do in order to get that shot? Yes. So um, I committed to the project um, after having... The penny drop after my friend texted me uh, a photo of them on, on the way back from a night out. <laughs> I saw the photo of the mice running around their feet. And uh, obviously I knew about them already, but, you know, I was looking for a project at the time. And, yeah, as I said, the penny dropped. And then I decided to commit a week to it and go down there for five hours a night and basically just lie on the station platform, obviously getting lots of funny looks from strangers. Um, <laughs> but thank goodness um, something actually came out of it. And I've actually got something to show for, for all of that. Otherwise, it would have been even more embarrassing. And there wasn't station security telling you to move along? So the station security, it kind of depends on on the station, really. Some of them weren't happy with me, and others were quite intrigued of what I was doing and were happy with me to stay. But, yeah, that's just another challenge that you wouldn't normally find with another kind of wildlife photography project. 
Yeah. It's interesting when you think of, you know, those those stories and pictures of nature photographers who are yeah. waiting in this in the grass or in the forest or in some swamp for hours at a time to get that amazing shot of nature and you're lying on yeah. the on the on the subway uh, platform <laughs> trying to yeah. get two little mice. Yeah, it's certainly a different shot that's for sure. Um I'm just pleased that the judges managed just to see kind of through that difference and, yeah, kind of took it on as a wildlife photo, I guess. When you talk about urban wildlife, is that something that you that you have begun to specialise in? Is that something that you're doing I think in others? So. Yeah, I, I'd say so. I Basically, I was brought up in London, so by default, that was the wildlife that I had around me. So I had no choice, really, and then kind of realised that people, like, the more urban and the more surprising the location for to see wildlife, the more that resonated with people. Like, I've been around the world on photo shoots and film shoots, but um, certainly all, all, all my successful photos have all been shot, you know, within two miles of my house in London, which is, which is just crazy to think. So, yeah. But it's interesting that urban wildlife is something that most of us try to avoid looking at. I mean, when, you, when there's mice in the subway, people don't want to know it's there, especially something like rats or cockroaches. I mean, these are animals that we try to ignore in our yeah. environment, but yeah, you don't definitely. do that, I guess. No, I mean, I think it's important that people, you know, a lot of people, that's the only wildlife that they're, they're going to see on a daily basis. And I think, you know, to have that connection with nature, you need to appreciate the little things and the more insignificant things. And it's funny because I felt the same about mice beforehand. I was terrified of them. I didn't have any kind of time of day for them. Um, and by the end, you know, I had the most, <laughs> the utmost respect for them. And, um, yeah, I now am that weirdo at the end of the platform on the night out with friends that would be watching the mice. <laughs> but, yeah, there's definitely something to be said of the more common animals that you may find around your around your home. Do you think there's any resentment in the the, the nature photographer world that your mice in the subway <laughs> would win out over their lions and tigers um, and bears? I think that some might be kicking themselves that they didn't think of the idea first. I guess it's just so obvious you just don't really think of it. But no, I think that people respect it. I mean, Charlie Hampton James, one of the most amazing and talented wildlife photographers out there, actually did a um, a story last year on rats. So, you know, all of the big players are kind of tapping into this um, new and upcoming approach. Um, and I think that it really resonates with everyone who kind of sees this imagery as well, which is, which is amazing. So what's next for you? What are you going to be looking at? Yeah, so photographically, I've got a couple of projects that are coming up this year. One just literally at the end of my road in Bristol um, in England and another halfway across the world, which is quite an exciting urban wildlife project. But I also work as a wildlife filmmaker for the BBC Natural History Unit. So that's my nine to five. So I'll be going on lots of shoots. But you mostly be looking around your feet to see what's going on. A few <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just outside your door. Yeah, you know it. <laughs> well, Sam, yeah. again, congratulations and thank you. Thank you so much. Bye. Cheers. Sam Rowley is the photographer behind the award-winning Station Squabble. He's also a wildlife filmmaker at the BBC's Natural History Unit. We reached him in Bristol. And if you want to see his photo, I hope you do, head to our website, cbc.ca slash AIH. He was working a remote trap line in northern Manitoba when he became a target. Last week, Daniel Anawak was coming out of the bush when he was shot by someone on a snowmobile who may have thought he was an animal. He was wounded and bleeding, and he walked for more than two days to get to Churchill, Manitoba, with only a compass to guide him. Here he is telling his story to CBC TV from his hospital bed. Just when I finished my last uh, trap, 
I was about to get out of the bush and when I was at the, the line of the bush I saw a, a snowmobile and there was only one person on it like he stopped he was about 400 yards away I didn't recognize him and the next thing I know I I heard a gunshot and it hit me I didn't know I was hit because I I fell down I blacked out for about 10 15 seconds then when I woke up I got up and then I started feeling blood coming out of my wound gushing out the guy where where he where he is and he was already flooring the throttle as fast as he could the other way. I was pretty scared. I I was thinking about my kids. I got three kids and being alive was my only thing that was to be alive for my kids, to see them graduate, to see them get married and all. And like I just started walking towards Churchill. I didn't stop day and night, I just kept going. That was Daniel Anowak speaking to the CBC from his hospital bed. Mr. Anowak was mistakenly shot and had to walk for more than two days after that to reach medical care in Churchill, Manitoba. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1 and on Sirius XM, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the whole show on the web. Just go to cbc.ca slash AIH and follow the links to our online archive. Thanks for listening. I'm Carol Off. And I'm Chris Houghton. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.